You are listening to the Grow Law Firm Podcast, where each guest shares actionable, practical ideas with you on how to get more clients, expand your reach, and grow your law firm's revenue and profit. Here's your host, Sasha Burson. Welcome to Grow Law Firm Podcast. I have such a distinguished guest here today. She's not just an expert advisor to law firm in all things branding and business development of, correct me if I'm wrong, over 25 years now. You're a well-published author in the legal space and you're a six-time gold champion in adult figure skating in this country, in the U.S. (laughs) I have never met an ice skating champion until today. Oh, <laughs> it's great to have you on. Yeah, we, we still put our pants on one leg at a time, Sasha. <laughs> Amazing. And I watched an interview with you somewhere on YouTube that goes back about 13 years, where you talk about how you got back into ice skating. And th- this podcast is all about practical ideas for law firms, but they want to talk about that for a little bit. You took like a 30-year break from ice skating and started skating again in your 40s, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I was actually 49, but yeah. <laughs> Are you still skating? Yeah, well, I'm still skating. I just competed two weeks ago and I have another competition in mid-September. Yeah. That is remarkable. And I understand you won your last gold medal in 2019, right? So not that long ago. It's 2023 now. Yeah, I've won other gold medals, but they weren't national medals. This was at uh, U.S. Adult Figure Skating Championships, which is a you know bigger competition um, than the local competitions because we don't have as many adults. But at nationals, we have lots. So, and then there was the pandemic, which is kind mm-hmm. of quite a big break. But I did compete this April at nationals, and I did get three medals in all three events, but none of them were gold. <laughs> but it was still a good showing. Nonetheless, that is absolutely remarkable. <laughs> well, thank you. It's an obsession. It, it really sounds like it. And the way we think about obsessions, if you wake up and you think about it and you go to bed and you think about it, it's an obsession. <laughs> I'm, and that right. I'm always plotting my next time on the ice or what I'm going to do my next lesson or, yeah, when's my new costume coming? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> In- incredible. Incredible. Let, let me ask you. Aside, aside from uh, ice skating, how did you get into advisory role to sizable law firms back in the day? So this is 25 years plus ago, back in the day where there were not very many business advisors to law firms, period. It's true. They were no, actually almost done. You know, when I got inducted into the uh, Legal Marketing Association Hall of Fame, we had to give an acceptance speech. And so I always tell the story of how I got into it. When I was 10 years old, one day I went to my parents and I said, I have decided what I want to do. And they looked at me and they said, what? And I said, when I grow up, I want to be a law firm marketing consultant. No kidding. Like said, no one, like no one ever. No one ever, right. So that, I, I got into it by circumstance. I was doing strategic marketing and planning and wound up going into recruiting for law firm for partners. And while I was doing that, I started coaching them and how to develop their business and take it from one firm to another. 
And one thing led to another because Sasha, when I got into this, it was just when uh, Telex, Telex has disappeared. I don't even know if you remember. This is before we had email and even faxes. They used to communicate on the Telex machine. And finally, emails came and partners were extremely resistant to it. They would have their assistants come in and dictate the responses to the emails because they thought it was a passing fad. And then, of course, came the whole concept of marketing, advertising, branding. Law firms were like, well, this is a fad. Websites, oh, this is a fad. We don't need to do this. But then finally came along the clarity of branding, which was law firms beginning to understand what brand development was versus branding. And so brand development is the process of that introspection to figure out what are your three unique selling points? How are you unique? How are you different? Why would a client come to you as opposed to someone else in your space? And understanding and incorporating that, I think, is becoming something very, very well now accepted and understood, but it's been 20 years in the making. And the law firms that got it have really strong positions now. And some law firms still just will take a tagline or have words like knowledgeable, experienced. But that doesn't tell me whether you're the person who is the plumber or cleans my pool or you know, what you do. And so having a brand line that actually reflects what you do so people look at it and understand what you do is the critical distinction for a strong brand. So that's very interesting because I speak with at least a couple hundred lawyers every single year, one-on-one in the conferences. And I find that whenever you go to a law firm's website, their branding is as bland as it can be in vast majority cases. As in, if you were to cover a logo on the website and open 10 tabs, 10 different law firm websites, messaging is about the same. Expert, honest, knowledgeable. Legal. The most legal. <laughs> yeah. So, but you mentioned something incredibly important uh, when you said that branding is super important to let your prospective client know why they should choose you over everyone else. And if your messaging is about the same as everyone else, they have absolutely no reason to choose you over everyone else. So I'm curious, what is the right type of exercise that law firms should go through to determine what is it that their branding should be? Or to me, the best definition of a really great branding statement is, why should the prospective client choose you over all other available options in the marketplace, because God knows they have so many different options. That's such a great question. And in the article that I sent you from JD Super about how branding can be the strategic backbone of law firm marketing, if people want to download that, I actually give away the farm. I actually tell how I do it. Um, mm-hmm. And the basic idea is to sit down when I, well, I'll give you, say how I do it, but this is how any law firm could do it themselves. But I think it's very hard if you're not an expert in this area to actually sift through this. But this year is the process. We sit down and for several hours, we generate facts about this law firm. You know, its history, how it deals with clients, its practice areas, its aspirations for the future. Just digging in deeply. And I call this process turning the telescope. Because instead of some, where some brand, branding companies will look out in the marketplace and say, what does the marketplace need? I turn it and look inward into the firm to be genuine about how they're distinct and different. 
So at the end of this two hours, we've collected probably somewhere between 150 and 250 facts. And I typically will take post-it note, chart paper, all around the room, and I just keep listing the facts. We list the facts. And then we go through and collapse and condense. And what happens is you will start to see the same fact coming up over and over again, but in different words. You say it one word, your partner might say it a different way, and we start to collect what are the three, I call them unique selling points, about the firm when combined no other firm can claim this distinction. And then it's my job to take this information, come back, and whittle it down to a brand essence statement. Here are three, three or four sentences about your firm that makes you distinctive and different than any other firm in your space. And you have to also go with the sense of the firm, you know, how uh, how much how cutting do they want to be cutting edge? For example, one firm that we did years ago did insurance recovery work. So when a company gets denied coverage for a problem, this law firm goes after the insurance company. The brand line we settled for them was settle for everything <clears throat> because they wanted a very aggressive line. You know, we don't just settle for a little bit. We we'll get you the full Monty. You know, we're going to get the whole thing. So the process is this exploration, whittling it down to these three unique selling points, writing the brand essence statement, and then coming up with a brand story that reflects all of that, and then selecting a tagline. I will give them a handful of taglines that all reflect those three unique selling points. And then the firm goes through and we process which one really is in our heart, says what we mean to say. And the other lines I typically will use when I write their website copy because they make good headlines, because all those taglines all are about the same three unique selling points. So any law firm that can, wants to tackle that and can do that and has that time and that creativity and expertise, but that's the process in a nutshell. Very interesting. What difference, if you can talk about that, what difference does it make to those law firms with which you work on this like a year or two or three years later? That's a great question. I want to read a quote to you from an in-house counsel client of mine who was always appalled that law firms didn't take branding seriously. This gentleman was the general counsel of Maytag. And if you remember, you know, Maytag's tagline, their machines, washing machines never broke down. And they took branding very seriously. And they never could understand why other firms, law firms didn't take this seriously because it's really reflected who they are. He gave me this quote in an article I wrote. When a law firm takes the time to identify and communicate its distinction and how it practices, how it deals with its knowledge and content, how it relates to clients, we in-house counsels can see it and feel it. More law firms need to identify their brand and be certain it's shattered from the rooftops, but applied to their websites, blogs, social media posts, webinars, presentations, and e-blasts. So it's not just the tagline. What do you do with that? How is your advertising? How are your social media posts, your blog posts, the webinars, the roundtables you put on, the, the communications with clients? Every, it should always include something about that brand. It's not just a cute rhyme. It actually is the essence of who this law firm is and what they stand for and how they practice and deliver. Very interesting. This this resonates 
very well with the last gentleman who I had on this podcast was a leadership expert who graduated from West Point at the top of his class, became a JAG, a military attorney, was a helicopter pilot in the army and has done so many different things within the U.S. government. And now he is on to consult in leadership uh, development for law firms. And he talks about how important it is to have values for a law firm and make sure that those values are aligned with the actions of the law firm. The one thing that I don't think Ben Grimes, super smart guy, one thing that he is not um, aware of is branding because he comes from the world of government, right? He was always a government man until recently when he became a leadership coach. So if you were to take that branding with the values and align it with actions, it would be even a tighter fit between how things are done. And the equity partners would see that the law firm actually grows more holistically because there's alignment between their vision, their values, and how everyone operates. Is that a fair statement? I think it is. But I also think that what you said is, a, is part of branding because the law firm has to stand for something. And so, you know, if you are, for example, the management committee or the brand development committee of a law firm, and you're, you're looking to, you know, drive revenue. I mean, the whole point of branding is to create that unique distinction in the marketplace. But then what has to happen is you have to develop sustainable long-term business development opportunities that pay off the brand. So, for example, a law firm on the West Coast that's one of the larger real estate firms, and they have 250 real estate lawyers, they have 23 practice areas in real estate, which sounds uncanny, right? Because most people are like, oh, I'm a, I'm a real estate lawyer. But some are in hospitality, others are in development, others are dealing with the environmental concerns of, of real estate development, just every aspect. But they were doing nothing, even though they were the largest on the West Coast, they weren't doing much to, to claim that distinction. We have all these practice areas, we do all this great stuff. And so in working with them, I created a survey with UCLA, with their um, Anderson School of Business. And every year, this School of Business creates an economic forecast. And we retained them to create a real estate economic forecast on commercial real estate. And we involved clients with this survey, and it's repeated twice a year. It worked so well, and it raised their visibility so much, they're now in their 15th year with UCLA doing the survey. And then they get to have the economists come and do seminars on it and um, create materials that they can send to their clients. They have podcasts. So the idea is take the brand, codify it, apply it to the website and social media, but then you must get to the business development aspect. So that's, I think, why I'm a little different than other law firm branding consultants, because I don't just do the branding. I actually create these sustainable long-term opportunities for them with clients and non-clients alike to raise visibility and reinforce their position. Very interesting. Are you at liberty to talk about what impact this had on this specific firm? You mean economically? Economically. Mm -hmm. No, not really, because I'm not really privy to that information. It's, uh, I don't know if they tie it directly to revenue, 
but they tie it directly to touch points with clients and non-clients and getting them together. So when they have the economist from UCLA come to do this economic forecast on real estate, they can invite their clients and non-clients to be on panels. They can invite them to be to be interviewed for articles afterwards. They can do a lot of things where they connect. So you have the glow of satisfied clients involved in some kind of activity with non-clients. And so it raises visibility, it raises business. But I don't think there's a way that they would specifically say, how can we measure how much business we've gotten just from the survey? I don't think so. Some of it's not codifiable, but it's visibility raising and revenue driving. I mean, it it really elevated them to a higher level of awareness with all, like some aspects of real estate. They're, they were very, very well known for commercial real estate, very large projects. But now all of a sudden they have these 23 areas. And so they involve all of those with this branded effort. If we were to interview partners at the law firm, they probably would say that there was a, over time, significant lift in business and client retention. Because that, that type of interaction, that is not easy to create unless you're very intentional about it. Right. And what I, you know, if I'm working with a small firm or a sole practitioner, the, the business development uh, creations are, are much more manageable and smaller. But when I'm working with a large firm like that, we have their whole marketing team involved. So they have marketing and business development people that take this and use it in all of their materials. They promote it. They, you know, have social media posts about, they can handle all of that. So really it depends on the size of the firm, but even for a sole practitioner, you can create very incredible business development opportunities. Um, so one example, a small law firm with five lawyers and this particular partner who ran the firm was in uh, the area of franchise and uh, vertical distribution law. And he wanted to work with large franchisors and he wanted to go outside California because he, there are a lot of large corporations and you know he knew some of them in California. He decided geographically, let's go to Atlanta. They have a lot of corporate headquarters there. So we created a roundtable and I was able to pull in 18 general counsels from these Fortune 500 companies to have a roundtable to discuss the Supreme Court case that was influencing franchising and uh, vertical distribution matters. And then we turned it into an article that was published in today's general counsel and turned it into opportunities for him to fly back to Atlanta to meet one-on-one and you as a business development coach know the value of that to find out how they find and choose lawyers and to increase his reputation with these companies. The day after the roundtable, we he got a piece of business from one of the Fortune 500 companies that was in attendance. You know, I wish I could tell you that every time <laughs> I did something like the next day, the phone rang like that. But he, you know, had that opportunity to keep going back to Atlanta and meet with three, four, five of these companies when he pleased and when they had time and develop these relationships. That's an amazing case study. When you work with smaller law firm owners, you get much resistance from them on the subject of business development because it requires um, getting out of comfort zone for most people. Most lawyers are very introverted and this requires a certain degree of getting over it. And if you do, how do you help them overcome that, that natural resistance? 
It's a great question. Uh, part of the part of the underpinning of creating success is to find out what they would be comfortable with. So, for example, for one lawyer who was in the hospitality space, we pulled together a group of clients and non-clients in the hospitality industry in a certain geographic area, and we did online Zoom roundtables. So it wasn't like a webinar where, you know, the talking head, everybody, it was like a Brady Buck screen where everyone saw everyone. And he started by throwing out a couple of examples of some changes in the law and some case law that had come down that changed what would be happening in hospitality business and then had everyone discuss it. And he could kind of chime in and give the legal perspective, but he did this once a quarter. And so it's a small firm. But, you know, it's a manageable thing that he can do. So there was no resistance. It's you can't pick someone who doesn't like to speak in public and make that the primary business development thing. You've got to find out. You know this because you're a successful consultant. You know you have to find what they're comfortable. Maybe it's writing white papers or publishing in JD Supra or Law.com or, oh, okay, here's a, a, a impending change in the law. And this is the manufacturing industry that's being impacted. I'm going to interview five clients and I'm going to write a white paper and I'm going to have so many touch points with them because as I write it, I have to send it back to them for review, for them to edit their particular quotes. And so I have like five or six touch points before the article's even published. So to answer your question succinctly, you just have to know the firm and the lawyer and have enough conversation to pull out what they would be comfortable doing and then create something that's sustainable. I don't believe, and I think you know this too, we don't you know, think that just by having like, oh, I'm the kind of person who will introduce you to somebody and you know, now I've done my work as a business development consultant, but rather how do we develop and enhance that relationship? Even the smallest firms, even sole practitioners, I talk to them about creating those moments of truth by talking to their clients about what worked well. What could I do next time to make it better? Have I ever done anything that I may be unaware of that was really problematic to you or anyone in your company? And when you own those moments of truth, you create that client satisfaction and loyalty. So that's another, for example, opportunity. It doesn't matter how shy you are, introverted. It's one-on-one. You have a relationship with that client. Let's enhance it. Because we know, because we're both business development consultants, that 80% of the business is coming from existing clients. And so, you know, we better do things to get them together with us to find out how it's going. Oh, true. And just for the record, I have not done business development consulting in a little over a decade. My, my focus now, and I've been doing this for a number of years, is search marketing for small law firms, small to mid-sized law firms. Ah, Okay. So, so, but but everything every, everything you're saying definitely rings true. It's just that the game that I'm in is completely different now. So, a lot of law firms who come to us, lawyers, there are they hire search marketing firms for the very reason that they do not want to do business development. They just want marketing done for them. But whenever we talk about how else can they grow their law firm, I always tell them, well, how much networking, how much business development do you do? How much things do you do that would actually help you propel your business forward? And often enough, they're like, 
hate networking. I hate doing this. I hate doing that. That's why I wanted to ask you that very specific question about how do you help them move forward and get over that natural resistance. And your point was just so excellent that it's finding the right fit for what it is that they actually would enjoy doing and getting them to do it. Right, right. I mean, we know some people just are paralyzed about doing public speaking or speaking at a conference and others just love doing it. So, you know, there's just a lot of other gambits that we should rely on to get them face-to-face with those clients. And, it, you know, it depends on their preference. It depends on what's their marketplace. You know, you have to really cater to what what's important to this industry or this vertical market and do something that's relevant to them. Another another thing, right to your point of lawyers not liking to do this, sometimes law firms, and you've seen this, will take a booth at a conference. Maybe it's a technology conference or they're in the manufacturing field, they're at a, you know, that kind of a conference. And they they just, you know, have a booth where they're handing out stuffed animals and, you know, chocolate. And so anyway. Right. What what does that do? So if you can't make a business development opportunity out of that, then it's not necessarily always a good use of time, energy, and money. So I will try to do something like, oh, we're doing a survey at our booth, looking at trends in whatever. It's three questions. Um, would you like to come to our booth? And if you do, we'll put you in a drawing for a free iPad, you know, so that you can get their card have a conversation with them and then have a reason to follow up because business development happens, you know, from not that one meeting, but from nine to 12, 14 other touch points, but that's a way. So even if you're not comfortable, you can stand at that booth and have conversations one-on-one with people, you know, and you have somebody walking around pulling people to your booth. Uh, I've seen all kinds of creative things like footprints on the exhibit floor, going to the booth, you know, just all kinds of things that people will do. So it's always different and it's always fun thinking of what's different and unique and fits your style and your personality and your comfort zone. So that's makes perfect, makes perfect sense and some great examples. Mary, do you ever work with small law firms that focus on what they refer to as B2C law, like a family law? personal injury, criminal defense, immigration? Yes. Uh, I have two firms right now in that space. One of them I've been working with four years at family law. And the, the ticket with family law is just understand where they want to be positioned. So this one particular family law firm wants to be positioned as only high asset divorces. And so we undertook branding, publishing articles, and a series of other things where we got the principles of this firm out and speaking and just constantly talking about the high asset divorce. You know, everybody, even if you're in family law or, or criminal law, you might have a niche. Do you do white collar crime only? Or do you do, you know, DUIs or what do you do? So it's really honing in on that expertise and then figuring out how do I get to the marketplace when you're talking about family law, workers' comp, personal injury, it's its pretty hard to create that distinction. But one habit that smaller firms have used is extensive SEO. So they'll be spending four or $5,000 a month on Google AdWords and on publishing, having fresh blogs, social media posts, so that their rankings come up. So if somebody's searching in that area, they, they will come up at the top. 
that is so rare. Most law firms are not, don't need to do that. So for example, if you came to me and you said, you know, I'm a litigator in Boston and, you know, I'd like to do extensive SEO, I would say, well, you know, that's like spitting in the ocean, you know, <laughs> because what's your distinction? What, why come to you? Unless you have a specific area of litigation that we can focus you on. So it's always, it's always a challenge and it's always different. But yes, I have worked with those kind of um, B to C firms, but uh, it's a smaller part of my business, but I've been, I've, you know, gosh, over 25 years, yeah, I've had experience in all of that. I can only imagine. So it's very interesting. We also do have a number of clients. Most of our clients are in the B2C space, right? So again, like family law, criminal defense, personal injury, social security, disability, et cetera, right? So for them, SEO, pay-per-click, a lot of things that are search are very common because most consumers do look for lawyers online. But I always still tell them, like, go and network, go and do promote your firm at local events, go and find places to publish your content in local publications. Like, for example, I live in Chicago, North Shore, which is like um, well, well-to-do area of Chicago. It's northern suburbs of Chicago. So there is like a local magazine that is distributed here. It's very well publication, very nicely done. There's an attorney who I do not know who does talk about high asset divorces. Every issue she publishes an article in that magazine and she knows that she's speaking to the right audience. We, we know that 50% of all adults in this country will go through divorce at some point. She's in the right geographical market because the demographics are right here. And she's publishing in a magazine that's probably somewhat well-read in this area. So to me, this is... Um, a branding opportunity because she does talk about tough cases and how to get through those tough cases without losing your mind. So this would be a good good example of PR and branding and so many other things encompassed in one article or series of articles rather that she has running every single month. If a small law firm or mid-sized law firm um, principal or manager wanted to reach out to you, how would they connect with you? And what questions should they ask you? Uh, I'm going to answer that, but I, you said something first I want to respond to, which mm. was about the smaller firm or any firm. I think one of the most important things in their networking is is not to forget their referral sources. Because most of us, our business comes from referral sources from other professionals. So staying in touch with them so that they can remember the next time their neighbor has this getting divorced, you know, they've heard from you enough that they were, oh, right, I'm going to refer mm. my, I'm gonna you to Sasha because he's a great divorce attorney. So just to add on to what you're saying, how do people get in touch with me? So uh, my email address is merry at emconsults.org. So it's like extrememarketingconsults.org. But just the EM, I shortened it because uh, extreme marketing was really cute 20 years ago, but kind of, you know, we re- I rebranded to emconsults.org because it just was too much. Or they can call me, um, 949-260-0936. And I'm also on LinkedIn. They could connect with me that way, or they can find me on my website, which is emconsults.org. So lots of ways. Mary, this was a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're so welcome. I appreciate you inviting me and thank you for all your insights. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Grow Law Firm podcast. If you liked the ideas shared in this episode, help a fellow lawyer out by sharing a link to the episode. This episode is powered by the team of experts in client attraction, growlawfirm.com. Do you want a complimentary growth plan for your law firm? Request it at growlawfirm.com slash blueprint.